welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And Mike and I are reading together our favourite series of novels, the Aubrey Matron books of author Patrick O'Brien. Mike, tell us, would you please, how we were getting on last week and how we might be going to fare this week. I'd be delighted, Ian. Thanks. Well, last week, we remember that Bondin lost the prize fight to Griffith's gamekeeper. Jack, with Diana and Clarissa's help, ignored the Admiral's orders and went straight to London to the committee meeting where he defeated the enclosure petition. Jack and Sophie argued over Mrs. Oaks just before Diana drove Jack and Stephen back to try to rejoin the squadron. So this time we've got Jack and Stephen trying to rejoin the squadron. We learn what women most desire. Ah, you know, in itself worth the price of admission here. Yeah, only 18 books in, right? <laughs> That's right. The Admiral reacts to the enclosure vote. We've got wrinkled asses, maggot therapy, and a potential new career path for Jack. Wow, it's going to be an action-packed chapter. Maggots and therapy. Oh, fantastic. Anyway, as you say, Mike, we had had it introduced to us that Jack and Stephen would be heading to join the squadron. And as promised, Diana delivers Jack and Stephen to Torbay, home of the Breast Squadron, the next morning. Looking down the hill into the town, they can see... Uh, one of the ships there, the Mars, is hoisting the Blue Peter, meaning that she's ready to leave and go back offshore to rejoin the squadron. The men think this is their opportunity to, to make an early getaway. They urge Diana not to spare the horses all their necks so they can catch one of the Mars's boats that's pulling off from the shore. And despite all of Diana's skill, which we now have been reminded is considerable, despite all of that skill, they can't get through the cattle blocking the road and they miss the Mars's boats. They ask around and it looks like there's no other ship headed for Ushant until Thursday, which puts them at a big disadvantage in making a timely arrival out at the squadron there. Stephen sees an older man and asks for directions to a respectable inn for his wife, for Diana and the horses, and the guy says, there is no such place here. There's the Feathers, which is the only inn where we should not, in his colourful phrase, be insulted with the company of trollops, but they have no stable yard. However, hope is not gone because the man asks, do I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Maturin? And Stephen is a little bit discomforted by that. He's uncomfortable at his ability to be recognised. He thinks to himself, intelligence agents should have turnip faces indistinguishable one from another. Their height should be the common height, their complexion sallow, their conversation prosy, commonplace, unmemorable. And by the way, Mike, that, that sounds like at least 50% of anybody's description of Stephen Maturin, but never mind. Right. <laughs> this gentleman that he's speaking to, Mr. Hope, says that his cousin, Hardwick Courtney, had taken him to the Royal Society to hear Dr. Maturin speak about Ornithorhynchus paradoxus, known to the rest of us as the duck-billed platypus. Mr. Hope, with his very well-chosen name, suggests that the horses could stay at this cousin's house, which has decayed a little, but has noble stables in the yard. But Mrs. Maturin could stay at the reliably trollop-free feathers. There's a youth who looks after Mr. Hope when he stays at the house to count bats, and that youth can tend to the horses. This is all sounding like a nice arrangement here. Stephen introduces him to Diana and suggests that if a ship can't be found to carry him out, perhaps he, Stephen, could help with the bat counting. So, Mike, not a great start for Jack, but Stephen seems to be falling on his feet here. Yeah, yeah, it does. He, he, he's found a place. And, you know, Jack and Hennage and Killick are heading out, seeing if, you know, that Jack and Stephen are going to be able to fall on their feet as well. They're trying to find seamen and figure out who's next headed out to rejoin the squadron. Uh, and, and Jack remains surprised as there's looking all around town here that seamen, who to him are such decent men with such hard-won knowledge, they, you know, they should know better, still continue to have what he calls such a primitive notion of what was fun and that they should attract such an obviously false set of hangers-on, such a forbidding crew of doxies, so very often short, thick, swarthy, sometimes so obviously diseased. So 
Jax, O'Brien tells us, is surprised, even though he's known this ever since before his voice broke, when he and Hennage were both first-class volunteers, you know, even before they were mids. They, they've known this is that way of life there. So they make their way first through all the respectable taverns, then to the boozing cans, to the billiard rooms, to the some not-quite-open brothels, looking for anybody who can give them news of a ship headed out to the squadron here. They've heard all about the most recent news from the squadron. You know, they've kind of got caught up on everything, but still they haven't been able to locate a ship. Uh, At the last place they go to, it's one of the more reputable eating houses way out of town. And and Hennage even suggests, you know, we're not even going to find a penniless mid here. Uh, In fact, they do. They find the young master's mate, James Callahan, you know, we remember him as Patty Callahan, the man who brought the orders when Jack was over at the dripping pan here. And, you know, Callahan from the Wrangles sitting there eating with a young woman. And mm-hmm. Jack checks himself. He starts to say, you know, what are you doing here? And, and O'Brien tells us the only possible answer being neglecting my duty, sir, and disobeying orders in order to lead out a wench or some more civil equivalent. Mm-hmm. And Jack smartly substitutes asking if he knows where the tender is. And Callahan tells him it's in Brixham with all hands aboard. And Jack says, well, will you be so good when you finish dinner with your guest here to have it brought around so we can catch the tail of the tide? So voila, in the last place, there it is. <laughs> They're right out to the squadron. Fantastic. We've, we've both fallen on our feet then. At the tail of the tide, Jack and Stephen have managed to make them their way on board the Ringle. They're headed for the squadron. And what's called the sea change comes over them quickly. This almost relaxing, I'm not sure relaxing is the right, right word, but this rapid reacclimatizing to being at sea with all the rhythms and the patterns and the daily, uh, the daily environment there. Stephen prefers his hanging cot aboard a ship to any bed ashore. And even with the perils of the sea and the violence of the enemy, both men feel a blessed relief come over them. There's a rock-strewn, hostile shore that they're going to face, this famous iron-bound coast of Brittany where the Brest Squadron beats up and down. They're going to face foul weather, gales, and wicked tides. But these, as Stephen thinks to himself, are little or nothing compared to the perils of life on shore, of domestic life on shore. And Mike, this is Stephen's inner dialogue, musing on how nice and safe and cosy and familiar it is at sea, but he's not the only one with that distinction on his mind, right? No, no. You know, as, as if thinking of those perils, Jack says, you know, he hopes Diana doesn't savage Hennage on the way back because, you know, even though you would not think it, you know, Hennage is very sensitive. You know, Jack says he once brooded for an entire evening when his father called him a vile, concupiscent, waste thrift whoremonger. You know, <laughs> oh, an entire evening brooding. What a sensitive guy. <laughs> Stephen, you know, says, yeah, Diana doesn't make any moral judgments like that. She just dislikes a bore or people with a want of style. And Jack says, well, he means if, if Hedge happens to criticize her driving or even diplomatically suggest that he might do better. Stephen says, Hedge is far too wise to do that. <laughs> we, we know Stephen's implication here. That Jack says, well, what, you know, Diana gave him a very cruel bite for his remark about the bridge. And Stephen says, I heard the remark. It was artificial, composed, tactful, and it would have vexed an angel, let alone a woman with four spirited horses between her fingers and the sun hot on the back of her neck. And he gives (laughs) Jack what's for here. He tells Jack that he wishes he could remember Joffrey Chaucer's poem about, you know, women in general's one consuming desire the desire for command. Now, he adds that it also contains some severe remarks on the sorrow and woe there is in marriage. And you know, we're getting a lot of commentaries on marriage, about domestic life, about leaving domestic life behind in this thing here. And you know, it seems to we have this dichotomy between domestic life and the freedom of going to sea, this you know, sea change that came over them here. It's, uh, it, it's fascinating that it's occurring to Stephen equally as to Jack. This is yeah. something that you might have easily have associated with Jack Aubrey back in the first few books. But now both men are realizing, do you know what? Sometimes life is easier when you're just uh, away from all of that. Also, they've both got difficult or have had difficult kind of financial and legal worries ashore now. Again, that's yes. not the sole preserve of Jack. And let, let's dig into 
this Geoffrey Chaucer reference, Mike, because there's some really, really interesting stuff to dig into here. Uh, it seems as though Stephen's referring to The Wife of Bath's Tale. That's one of the longest of the tales. The, the, the prologue to The Wife of Bath's Tale is longer than the tale itself. And in the prologue, the wife is arguing against the subservient lives of women and uh, speaking about how they're not identified by their social status or their occupation, but only by their relationship to men, to being a maiden or a spouse or a widow, capable of childbearing or cooking or doing women's work. And the wife of Bath in this prologue is pointing out the double standards in society that treat women and men differently. And Mike, if I, if I remember right, this, this story has the, the wife of Bath acting in ways that by the standards of the time were unacceptable for a woman. Like she, she acts in very manly ways. She uses power and money. She reverses roles. She takes control of her own sexuality. She goes on to marry five times. There's some kind of a message here for us maybe about control and about gender and about marriage. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, all, all of that about her is in this prologue. So here's this woman telling this story. And, and we wonder, is this, as Stephen said, to control ultimately, you know, is that what they're really going for? You know, she calls it in, you know, in, the, in the prologue and then in the story, in, in, which is kind of an example, sovereignty. Now, huh. I, I have to admit, I, I endorsed in my reading in this, I, I kind of infused it with a little bit of my kind of optimistic, you know, what, what I'd like to think O'Brien's trying to tell us. But, you know, I think I have to leave it to the listeners and, and the readers to decide themselves. <laughs> I'd like to think of it maybe not as sovereignty, like the queen has over a subject, but an attempt to achieve a more even or equal, you know, level relationship, a relationship where she is, if you will, her own sovereign in making decisions and choices for herself without a man, if, if you know, my words, lording over her. Now, uh, granted that, as we heard in the, the prologue with the wife of Bath, Certainly, you know, the pendulum swung way to the other side in the way she ordered her life before kind of moving perhaps back a little closer to the middle in the tale that she tells here. The tale she tells is about King Arthur's court and that there's a knight who has raped a woman. And this man is sentenced to death. But Queen Guinevere, you know, mm -hmm. using a woman's power, a woman's smarts, uh, not the king's, intercedes to spare the knight's life if the knight can come back in a year and tell her what women most desire. So he travels, and he's free to roam wherever he wants, travels all over, asks all these women, and you know he's thinking to himself, I've spent a year doing this, all their answers are different. You know, someone fame or riches, clothes, sexual pleasure, flattery, freedom, all these different things. So he's returning with no answer. He doesn't have one answer to give her. And on the way, he sees 24 maidens dancing in a field by a castle. As he approaches, they disappear as if by magic, and they're replaced by one old woman. He tells her his problem, and she agrees to help him if he will grant her any favor she asks after he's free. So, hey, our contingency fees with our law firm are only if you win. So <laughs> he's like, yeah, what do I got to lose? Absolutely. You know, whatever you wish here. So back at court, the knight reports that what women most want is sovereignty over their husbands. Stephen's point, if you will. And the women of the court, Guinevere and the rest of her court, agree. And they free the knight. They say, you got it. And the old woman then steps up and explains the deal that she struck with the knight. And they're like, okay, well, yeah, you get your favor. What do you want? She says, well, I want him to marry me. Well, you know, the knight's like, uh-oh, <laughs> yeah, boy, I've stepped in it now. And he marries her. And on their wedding night, he's kind of aghast by her, her looks here. And she explains, well, you know, my looks are an asset to our relationship. You know, would you prefer an old, ugly woman who's true and loyal? or a young, beautiful woman who may not be faithful. And the knight says the choice is hers. So she's thinking, ah, he gets it. Sovereignty, you know? He, he's not only gave the answer, but he's practicing the answer here. And she promises him both beauty and fidelity. Well, the knight who's looked away turns back to look at her and sees this young, lovely woman. And so it's like, okay, this is me. Okay, we've got the best of all possible worlds here. We've got this even relationship. You're allowing me to make my own choices. 
you don't have to allow me. I can make my own choices, but you get it now. And, you know, so we all get everything we want. However, in a contradiction to my optimistic view, the wife of Bath ends the tale by praying that Jesus blesses women with meek, young, and submissive husbands and the grace to break them. So, you know, I'm I'm hanging on to the word grace here. (laughs) As we say, you know, we don't break horses here on our farm. We start them. (laughs) So maybe we need women to start men gracefully here. Well, Mike, this has got all kinds of connections to the to the stories that we've seen of Sophie and Diana and how their lives have gone. Uh, loads of the references, even very, very kind of layered, deep references in text that come up in the chapter, pointed to their, their, their agency and decision-making power of women. And Chaucer, I mean, we talk sometimes about O'Brien ha- having attitudes that might have been a little bit ahead of his time in the 60s and 70s, although by the time he writes this, we're in the 90s. Chaucer wrote The Wife of Bath's Tale at, at a time when everything in society was changing. The late 14th century, we've got the reign of Richard II, we've got the Peasants' Revolt. This is a very, very deep and profound connection I think O'Brien's trying to get us to make here. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, the Peasants' Revolt and how it kind of mirrors, you know, the, the whole enclosure mm. debate we've got going on here. Yeah. The Wife of Bath and the changing sexual and gender mores stick a pin in that you know i yeah. think we're going to come back to that we just had jack and sophie discussing the whole mrs oaks thing and yeah. you know i so absolutely there's you know we've had throughout the canon all these domestic stories and as we said you just said it women's agency we're right in the midst of it here yeah and, and, as, and as jack and sophie are going to find out the more is the merrier but anyway gone on this this tangent thinking about the wife of Bath, <laughs> Stephen realizes that his interlocutor Jack Aubrey, Royal Navy, has fallen asleep. <laughs> so Stephen gives up on the tangent, stuffs wax balls in his ears, says his evening prayer, goes to sleep then, thinking about his last voyage on the ship with Bridget, remembering her, standing in the bows, entranced, as he remembers, by the scent of the sea. And again, Mike, we get this reference back to the difference between the love that Bridget has for the sea, uh, like her father, very different from her mother, who's been seasick every time she's stepped aboard a ship. When Diana's aboard, they take the fastest, most direct routes to limit the seasickness. But Bridget seems, you know, born to love the exploration of being at sea. Now, morning comes. They're awakened by Weatherby, who's reporting, giving Mr. Hughes compliments and reporting that the squadron is topsails up in the east-southeast, which is the direction they would have been headed to get to Ushant. And the idlers are going to be called in five minutes. I'm like, surely 18 books in, everybody who hasn't figured it out for themselves has looked it up in one of our many great resources, like the Patrick O'Brien Muster book. But just in case, O'Brien very generously puts a bit of exposition here present in the text of the chapter. Whether believes and Stephen turns to Jack and asks, confessing to his lubberish ignorance, what exactly is an idler? And Jack is a little bit like us. He's going, surely, man, after 18 books, you know what that is. Are you, are you making game of me? Are you practicing on me? But having checked that that's not the case, he explains that idlers are the daymen, the ones who get to sleep a full night, and they're roused out before the sun to help clean the decks so that they don't go proud of their status and give themselves airs, as Jack puts it. One example is Stephen's Loblolly Boy, and that brings him to the topic of what Stephen is going to do for a loblolly boy now that he doesn't have padding. And Stephen's hoping that he'll find one or a candidate in the new draft coming aboard the Bellona. He hopes, he says, to find a wholly reliable man, a kind, modest, truthful creature who will give exact doses as regular as his watch, which strikes six as he says this, and the idlers then start their claiming. And this is quite a high hope, Mike. For Stephen, like even Padine had had spells where he strayed as a loblolly boy, and we've had other loblolly boys who are anything but, you know, honest and reliable. Uh, Stephen asks himself, "Where will such a treasure be found?" And then Jack raises the interesting question: "Well, couldn't you call back Padine?" So let's just remind ourselves of what was going on with Padine. Yeah, and and I couldn't help but thinking, Ian, as as Stephen's going on and on and on about this perfect loblolly boy that he's trying to find, I thought. I wonder if this is a little poke at men thinking about the perfect wife. Oh, as well. 
really you know, good. It's it, so that, you know, yeah. because we keep having this theme woven round and round. So like you say, uh, Jack brings Padine up and Stephen says, well, I can't call Padine back because of his laudanum addiction and because I promised him a house and acreage for looking after Bridget and Clarissa in Spain. But even though he says Padine is with child to go there, he won't. Because even though he knows the place is glorious, he's worried about owls. He's worried, oh, there might be neighbors on the land where he has the right to, you know, cut his turf there. He's worried that he might be alone. He might be frightened. And Stephen has told him that the priest will find him a wife. So the cure to all ills. (laughs) And Stephen says Padine's thinking is like marriage. He would and he would not. So O'Brien, you know, (laughs) kind of finishes the loop for us. He said, yep, yep. I'm still on that same subject here. This is marriage. And Stephen, interestingly, recalls two men who had courted girls, really strongly urged their suits, and then killed themselves the day before their wedding. Ooh. Now, he asked Jack, he says, now, do you know any women that have done that? And Jack says, no, no, never heard any woman doing that. But I have heard of some women who, you know, run away on their wedding night. So again, this really interesting thing about you know, do what, what is it that women desire? Well, what is it that men desire <laughs> that do this and, and our attitudes and everything else? Well, <laughs> so we delve a little bit further into maybe what makes a good marriage and a good woman and, you know, the right setting here. Well, they start to speculate on uh, the familiarity or otherwise of the sexual knowledge of, of women going into the, going into their marriages. And Stephen, takes half a swing at it, I think, not very successfully, by saying, well, maybe it helps to have been raised in the country. He describes a country girl might see horses and cows breeding, and therefore, in Stephen's words, a phallus is an acknowledged object, a matter of some curiosity, perhaps, but certainly nothing wholly unexpected, possibly wholly unexpected and even apprehended as a horrid malformation and a natural growth. Jack starts to say, that he doubts a country education always, uh, and, and then he's cut short. I think he was going to comment on the background and raising of Sophie, but we'll come back right. to that in a second. He's cut short by the crash of those idlers that we were talking about, dropping a large stone loaded with shot used to clean the deck and some corresponding agonised howling, which sounds like it got dropped on someone's foot. Stephen runs up on deck and... It, it's interesting, before we get back into what's happening here with the idlers and the uh, and the cleaning, what's going on in Stephen's mind as he thinks about marriage? Maybe he's trying to say women would be better in marriage, marriage would be better for women if they knew more about sex. And Jack is hinting that given his experience with Sophie, it takes more than simply having been raised in the country. And, and maybe there's a difference between being raised as a, as a working class milkmaid on a farm versus being raised in a middle-class Jane Austen-like household of Mrs. Williams. Who knows? It certainly seemed, I think we knew this from a while ago, that Sophie was pretty ignorant about sex and childbirth at the time of her marriage to Jack and had been put off both of those, um, even though she'd been raised in the country. So Stephen's first attempt at this doesn't entirely land, right? Yeah, but we, you know, we are back to all the double standards and how they do us a disservice yeah. all the way around. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Well, Stephen returns from his patient. He got up on deck and he finds Jack pretty much finishing off the breakfast. And Jack asks Stephen to forgive him, saying greed had overcome him. Stephen says, "Will you say that almost every morning, brother?" And I'm afraid that it is true. Stephen says he hopes Jack can be saved from Gule that brutish and most unamiable of the seven deadly sins. Now, Mm -hmm. Stephen clearly is referring to the sin of gluttony, you know, kind of this overindulgence or lack of self-restraint in food and drink or other things. And that word comes from the Latin meaning to gulp. Gul is an old term for the throat or the gullet. So I think we have our our correspondence here now. But Stephen, in the meantime, notices that Jack is, as as he says, fresh-trimmed, neat as a bridegroom, almost handsome in your fine coat and epaulets. And he asks, what's afoot? And Jack says, well, the squadron's close by and the Admiral will soon be sending for him. 
And and I don't know about you, Ian, but I was like, well, well wait a minute. So we bridegroom? just said, bridegroom. yeah, it's like a bridegroom headed to meet the admiral. We've just talked about all these bridegrooms who kill themselves just before their wedding here, mm. you know. And all this talk earlier in this book about getting Jack out of here, out to sea, yellowing admirals, you know, and bridegroom suspects it maybe. You know, it kind of were suggesting that Jack might be doing himself in or have the potential to do so in, in his meeting with the Admiral here or leading up to it. Oh, boy. Well, that, that sets us on edge already for what this encounter with the Admiral is going to be like. And by the way, we already know something about the Admiral's opinions on enclosures. So we're worried. Jack is also anticipating that there's going to be some business to take care of involving Stephen. He says that you may have an intelligence mission since we're going to be so close into the shore and therefore the Admiral may call for you as well. And would you therefore uh, not think it prudent to shave and change your clothes? Which is, I think, something that Jack and Killing between them have suggested that Stephen does, probably every other chapter in the entire canon. <laughs> right, right. But Stephen pushes back on this occasion. He says, well, I've been thinking about growing a beard. You know, Roman emperors wore beards in wartime. The coat that I've had here will do very well for many years. And I, my, what do you think about this idea of the, the, the beards and the clean-shavenness? Yeah, I'm not buying it here. I mean, Stephen knows his history here. And, yeah. and you know, I, I'm not sure whether he's pulling Jack's leg, whether he's just slacking and using, you know, history as a defense here, because the Romans were clean shaven. I, I mean, they were clean shaven, not just to avoid a, a fate similar to what Bonded had in the boxing ring, somebody grabbing your beard and lopping yeah. off your head here, but to distinguish themselves from barbarians. The Roman name barbarian came from the Latin barba, meaning beard. You know, barbarians were people who had beards. So beards were definitely seen as a sign of low status. Now, you know, fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years, and you've got Emperor Hadrian from the early 80 centuries, the first time a Roman emperor wore a beard. But after him, they kind of go in and out of fashion. So... Lots to look out for, for for beard references for later on. Maybe. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jack summons the help of Killick, like he always does. At, at least, he says, let Killick brush the lint from the front of your coat and, and check whether there's blood on it. And he says that Stephen would surely not want to put the barkey to shame as he steps aboard the flagship Charlotte. Stephen's response is that maybe hmm, I should have put on an apron when I was treating this last patient. Um, I can't change coats without unpacking the sea chest, he says. And Killick's all over this. He's been listening. He's dug straight into the sea chest. In the twinkling of an eye, he comes up with Stephen's good blue uniform coat and clean breeches. And he says he doesn't want any more London Monmouth Street cries for shame. And like uh, Monmouth Street, in a part of London that was once a bit of a dive, but it is now very fancy, was famous for old clothes shops, for what you might call these days you know, the Goodwill, just like shop selling raggedy old clothes. Uh, back in, That was back in the 18th century. Stephen quite rightly feels some shame on his own behalf, hangs his head and focuses on pouring coffee. And this is a reference to what we now learn was an occasion back in Bantry Bay in Ireland, so therefore towards the end of the last novel or between the two novels, when going ashore dressed shabbily, one of the Royal Oaks cutters commanded by a drunken midshipman had called out, what ho, Bellona? Any old clothes? Any old rags, bottles, bones, rabbit skins? In the manner of the London street traders. And to the infinite grief of the ship, this cry, this teased aimed at Stephen, had become popular in West Cork. Oh, so, the woe and the shame. Killick and his shipmates and the midshipmen's berth, and certainly the wardroom, don't want this cry imported into the breast squadron. So even Jack is quiet and thoughtful as Killick goes to work on the Doctor and gussies him up a little bit. Later, Jack shows what O'Brien tells us is a fairly respectable surgeon. The surrounding territory from the quarterdeck is telling him about the very dangerous waters leading into the long channel into the harbor where the French cannot get out when the wind is in the southwest. And when that wind picks up, it batters the squadron cruelly while the French are sitting there sheltered. Sometimes it's so hard that the squadron is blown off the blockade when the wind changes and the French, you know, come out, they take British convoys and merchantmen, 
while the squadron spends all its time trying to beat back up into position again. Well, they, they watch the squadron wear in succession. Stephen recognizes the Bologna, wishes her good luck, Jack says, amen. And then they see the Queen Charlotte with the, you know, the white ensign at the fore for you know, the admiral who's the vice admiral of the white. Jack is pointing this out to Stephen. Jack notes that the Alexandria is missing and, and guesses that you know, she's gone in with her boats to see what the French are up to in the harbor. If so, he says, the gunboats may come out shortly. And then they hear a French 42-pounders guns firing as the landward haze starts to clear and the Alexandria is coming back out of the harbor here. And Jack's glad that they're wasting their power with the Alexandria already out of range. Ah, so already we're reminded that this is not just, you know, a, a blue ocean voyage at sea. These ships attacking back and forth under the cover of the long-range naval artillery that's ashore here on the coast of Brittany. Callahan gives over the report that the Bellona's captain, that's Jack Aubrey, has been signaled to repair aboard the flag. And Jack asks Weatherby to see what the Alexandria is signaling as she comes back out from under the guns. What she's signaling is a list of the ships that she'd sighted in the harbour at Brest. We get this little list. Uh, a first rate with a rear admiral's flag, a line of battle ship with 16 ports, a 74, a frigate with yards and topmasts struck, a hulk, a corvette, a brig devoid of topmasts, and two frigates with everything aloft ready for sea. So that's a pretty powerful force. And that's a little reminder, I think, that the purpose of these ships of the Brest Squadron being there is to get these French fleet bottled up and be on the alert for when they might break out. As the Ringle passes well to the east of the flagship, the Queen Charlotte, Stephen says, aren't they going to the Admiral? Jack says, yes, they are, but they're going by way of the Bellona's barge. He says that the Almighty will love him, that's to say Jack, even less than he already does when he hears Jack's news and with such an unlucky omen, and he expects some wicked squalls when he sees the Admiral. And Stephen says, well, hang on a minute, what's this unlucky omen? And of course, he's talking about the beating of Bondon in the fight on the dripping pan. He remembers that Stephen had been worried about Bondon's head and says, how's it looking now? Stephen has to begin with his usual kind of cursing out of Jack for being superstitious. Shame upon you, he says. Shame upon you and fie for a poor, weak, superstitious creature. What connection can there be between the two matters? Well, the heart has its reasons, Jack began, but with a confused memory of kidneys troubling his mind, he dropped the heart and went on, saying that uh, Julius Caesar believed in unlucky omens, and I think if it's good enough for Caesar, then it's good enough for Aubrey. Um, will Bondon be okay, asks Jack, to cox and my boat across to the Admiral. And Stephen thinks, probably, but he's going to check on Bondon. And I love this little callback to the joke in the previous chapter about the heart and the kidneys, just reminding Jack that he's still the Jack of all the Aubreyisms. Right. Well, you know, Bondon is, is kind of half in and half out of his formal rig as the captain's coxswain. As, as Stephen finds him, Stephen asks how he feels and starts looking at this really angry wound on Bondon's now hairless scalp. So apparently, you know, his wound was such that they've, they've shaved him here. And Stephen says it was a cruel, unlucky throw. And, and Bondon agrees, saying, you know, he really cherished his pigtail. It was the finest in the fleet. He says, but he came home by weeping cross. But, he says, it gave me one more wrinkle in my ass, however, which is to the good, no doubt. And we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah. Stephen asks if he feels capable of taking the barge across to the flag. And Bondon says, yeah, absolutely. You know, he's never going to let the captain wait upon the admiral without his coxswain. So Stephen dresses this big, ugly wound here. And then Bondon covers it up with his tow wig and, and tow, T-O-W. It's, it's flax or hemp that's kind of beaten and combed into thin fibers. So, you know, even Bondon's got a nice wig here. Uh, Stephen asks Bondon, about this wrinkles in his ass that he mentioned. And Bondon tells him that in Seven Dials, yep, here we are back to the same district where Bondon had lived and, and boxed everybody. People say every time you learn something new, your ass takes on a new wrinkle. And he learned that it's better to be as bald as a coot than to risk the fall he had with such a cruel loss. He says it was worth the wrinkle. And 
Ian, this this coming home by weeping cross is this you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a phrase that means l- losing out, coming home disappointed or grieving. Um, a weeping cross is a grave marker, a stone cross often erected in a place where penitents would be offering their devotion. So to come home via a weeping cross means coming disappointed back to home. If I recall, there's even a little town or village called Weeping Cross that used to have one of these weeping crosses somewhere over there in in England. (laughs) You're right, Mike, there is. According to Google, there's a village called Weeping Cross in the county of Staffordshire. So there you go. Every day's a school day. (laughs) Well, I, I think if we're not all to be going home by Weeping Cross, we need a bit of nourishment and sustaining a refreshment of some kind at this point, Mike. So let's take a short break and we'll be joining people with Weeping Cross clearly in our rearview mirror right after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope none of you have returned by way of Weeping Cross, but are all doing well. No grieving and mourning. Well, they finally have reached the Bologna. Captain Jenkins has a, has a quick chat with Jack before leaving, you know, to getting him aboard the tender. Uh, First Lieutenant Harding reports a signal for Stephen. So as, as just as Jack thought, Stephen's being called to repair upon the flag as well. And after they ride across in the barge, Jack is piped aboard the Queen Charlotte with the full post-captain honors. And Bonded has a man make sure that the doctor gets up the side respectfully as well. Stephen greets the ship's surgeon, a Mr. Sherman, and tells him that he wants to learn more about his paper on Califora larvae and wants to consult with him on a case. Sherman invites him to the wardroom for a glass of Madeira, but decides to continue the conversation in his cabin since he says there's such a childish prejudice against maggots, even among the educated. Yeah, can't can't imagine. (laughs) Even the educated? Prejudice against maggots? So now we're learning about a little bit more about what these larvae are Stephen's talking about. They talk about Sherman's maggot treatment. And then Stephen tells him about a coma case with no fracture of the skull, some recent breathing concerns, and changes in behavior and vocabulary, which concerns him. And Stephen says he really values the opinion of Sherman, the author of The Mental Health of Seaman. And in a couple things here, maggot therapy, the Sherman guy, we know anything more about these? Yeah, I think we do. And, and by the way, it's interesting that Stephen's asking in the name of Bonden, and that he's attributing this mentioning of wrinkles and arses as a sign that not, not all is not well mentally with, uh, with Barrett Bond and after his concussion. Anyhow, I, I love this reference to maggot therapy. It's a real thing. Maggot therapy uh, these days is, is used pretty widely in the management of really intractable wounds, in surgery, in trauma. Uh, of course, these days, maggots are disinfected first, so that as they are used, they're clean. But the maggots are applied to an open wound to clean out necrotic tissue, dead tissue, to disinfect and treat wounds. And this has been done since the times of antiquity, not only in what you might call European Western medicine. There are Maya, Native American, and Aboriginal Australian tribes that have reported in, you know, in, in history that this was a practice that they used as well. Military physicians reported that soldiers with wounds colonized by maggots had less mortality and morbidity than soldiers without colonized wounds. Uh, Napoleon's own general surgeon, Baron Larre, who was mentioned in the story, um, reported during the campaign in Egypt and Syria that certain species of fly consumed only dead tissue and therefore helped wounds to heal. Doctors in the Civil War in the US used the same treatment and track rapidly ahead to the 21st century. In 2004, the FDA themselves cleared maggots of the common green bottle fly for use as a medical device. Interpret that how you will. For use as a medical device in the US to treat certain conditions. And the uh, the National Health Service in the UK also approved the use of maggot therapy for those same situations in 2004. And I've, I've spoken to doctors and surgeons who were using it even before then. Fascinating. And I love the fact that we're really being asked to join in with the revulsion 
against maggots, but then they're surprised that actually this is a very enlightenment thing to be doing with maggots, a very great way of treating intractable uh, trauma, right, Mike? Well, I, I guess the thing I can't believe is now that I know that these barn flies I have are, are prescription-only medical devices, I, I'm astounded <laughs> I can still afford to have them so many around my barn. <laughs> yeah, you should see the copay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we've got this guy, Sherman. I, I, I always used to read straight past this. Uh, but the name Sherman, this is the name of the surgeon aboard the Queen Charlotte who was talking to Stephen about maggots. The, the choice of name might not be an accident after all, right, Mike? Well, it's, it's interesting. There was a William Sherman or Shearman. He was 1767 to 1861, his lifespan, a London physician who wrote extensively on epilepsy and brain complaints and nervous afflictions. But as far as I can tell, there's no Sherman that served as a ship surgeon at the time. There's no Sherman at the time you know, writing about maggot therapy, a paper that Stephen might be referencing here. And even the mental health of semen that that the book that Stephen attributes to him appears to be entirely made up for the book. However, interestingly, there is a Dr. Ron Sherman who happened to study, among many other places, at the London School of Hygiene and Topical Medicine. He studied first his, his BA was in insects and then he became an MD, a doctor, and he published his first paper about maggot therapy in 1983. His continuing studies led to FDA approval and the NHS approval that you mentioned above here. You know, this could be a coincidence, but I suspect not. Uh, because in, in one of his papers, he wrote all about Napoleon Surgeon reporting on this. So I, I, can, I can absolutely see where, you know, a, an O'Brien writing about Napoleonic Wars would have said, ooh, maggot therapy, there's a go-to for some point in the canon. <laughs> yeah, and I bet he wrote it on an index card and kind of stashed it away, waiting for a moment when he could introduce it. Right. So, good old Sherman. Ah, oh, fantastic. Now, meanwhile, back in the great cabin, we have the first encounter between Jack and Admiral Lord Stranraer. It's not particularly an auspicious start. The Admiral asks Jack why he's so infernally late. And Jack says, well, I'd left for London to attend a committee meeting before your orders came. And we know already that the Admiral was interested in this committee business. So he, he asks if it was the meeting for Simmons Lee, the common that he had been advising his nephew to enclose. And Jack said, yes, it was that one. The opposition by the commoners and by himself as Lord of the Manor had caused the petition to be dismissed. There's not really any beating about the bush here. He's going to just come straight out with it and say, I was against this thing that you were in favour of. The Admiral, as the text says, looked wicked, um, tried twice over to say something, and then says, okay, we'll return to service matters. And I, I, I like this sign that the Admiral is wrestling to control his irritation with Aubrey. Anyhow, they get back onto, as he says, service matters. He says... This parliamentary leave is having a most injurious effect on the discipline and general efficiency of the Bellona, which he sarcastically says was never that good in the first place. In a recent exercise, while you, he says, were amusing yourself in town, the Bellona had almost fallen onto the flagship in a simple manoeuvre, had had to be fended off while a dozen different voices from the decks of the ship shouted out contradictory orders. Captain Jenkins, that's the jobbing seaman, is, according to the Admiral, no more of a seaman than his grandmother, even when he's sober. But the Admiral had expected more of Aubrey's officers, many of whom are his personal choice. You'd never were much of a seaman, he accuses Jack of, but you'd usually had the good fortune to pick men who can actually sail a ship. And he says, now I regret to say, your luck seems to be running out. And that has a certain resonance for us who've known Jack for a long time as Lucky Jack, an admiral that's calling time maybe on this stream of good luck. The admiral isn't done yet. He goes on and says, um, I was startled and you will be startled by the number of Irish pennants on the Bologna. He's talking about those wispy bits of unwound hemp cordage that kind of fly away from the rigging. You'll be astounded by the number of Irish pennants and the filth oozing from her head unless he says perhaps you prefer it that way. And Mike, this is, this is quite a dressing down. It, it's also not entirely consistent with how we know Jack likes to keep and run a ship, how we know officers like Pullings would generally run a ship. 
And maybe this sounds a bit like it's still one-sided on the part of the Admiral here. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is part of the turbulent squalls from the almighty Jack was expecting once yeah. he gave the enclosure vote. And he's he's getting it. Well, the Admiral goes on to say that he's now posting the Bologna to the inshore squadron. And he hopes with all the difficult, arduous navigation among the innumerable reefs, many of which have not yet been charted, and months of beating up and down will help teach them some seamanship certainly much more than they ever learned from their countless lazy miles rolling down the trades with their flowing sheets. You know, boy, he is laying it on thick here. He also hopes that when the French see the kind of opposition that is waiting for them there in the inshore squadron, they may be tempted to come out where, as the Admiral says, the ships in better order may be able to deal with them. So, boy, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, you know, when they see how crappy the ships are I have in there, you being among them, they'll probably come out and me and our good ships will be able to take care of them. And then the Admiral goes on to move his lips silently before recovering himself and telling Jack to tell Dr. Matron he'd like to see him. So, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, as I'm reading this, I'm going, so, so Jack and the crew are lousy sailors and will be such a farce that they may tempt the French to come out to be taken by ships who know how to sail and to fight. All this from the mouth of a man who Jack said earlier, his courage has never been tested. So this guy's never been a fighting captain here. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, if Stephen had been sitting in that chair, I think he would have called him out or tweaked his nose by now something. But Jack's, you know, God bless him, is just sitting there taking it. No, he really is. If this was Admiral Hart, Jack would have been Ooh. on his feet, at least d- striving at some kind of insubordination. Absolutely. Poor old Jack. Anyhow, Stephen is much delayed in the sick berth, but when he finally gets to see the Admiral, the Admiral's delighted to see him. Now, he hadn't been sure that this was the same Dr. Maturin that he'd met along with Prince William in Bath, and he's glad that he is, and... This is a connection that Stephen can't quite recall. But the Admiral goes on and explains that back then he was playing Captain Hanbury Coop and had inherited the title only a few years later to become, as he is now, Lord Stranraer. Stephen offers his congratulations, saying it must be glorious to be a peer, and the Admiral confesses that it is, giving him, as he says, extra power like a double purchase block. Now, the reason that he'd sent for Stephen is that when, they would, when they'd been sitting by His Highness's bed those years ago, he'd been struck by a sudden pain and thought he was going to die, and Stephen's remedy had dismissed that pain in less than two minutes. He and the Duke were both impressed, and the Duke, the Admiral's old shipmate, had said, there's Dr. Maturin for you. He can cure anybody so long as the tide is not on the ebb and as long as he likes the patient. And having already corrected Jack's superstition wants today. Stephen is called to correct the Admiral's superstition and politely puts him down saying, "Uh, uh, uh, it's a widespread superstition. I could only do what ordinary medical men can do. Tides and my liking have nothing to do with it. Now, despite this, the Admiral begs Stephen to tell his surgeon, the guy Sherman, the maggot guy, uh, what that remedy had been because this pain comes back sometimes. And he, he describes Sherman as an ignorant dog. This ignorant dog can't find out the remedy. And like he always does in these situations, Stephen is very keen to to cry up the power and the clinical independence of the surgeon on the scene. He says, Dr. Sherman's a very eminent physician. He has made advances in surgery and knows more about the seafaring mind and the minds of landsmen when he was consulted on the king's malady. The Admiral says, I've heard of him cried up as a mad doctor, and neither me nor my crew have a need of a mad doctor, nor of someone who can't cure an infernal burning physical pain. And he rings for some Madeira. This is an interesting little link to the story of King George III and an interesting prejudice and misunderstanding on the part of the Admiral, I think. I think. He's talking about the King's malady, and this is King George III, who was, was famously, in air quotes, mad, certainly suffered from ongoing mental illness that would probably be described these days as bipolar disorder, but also had a physical condition, porphyria, probably. And one of the manifestations of porphyria is a really acute, sudden-onset abdominal pain. So, actually, Sherman, having been part of the physician team treating the king's malady, 
actually potentially qualifies Sherman to treat acute physical pain just as much as Stephen is qualified to treat this acute physical pain. So the Admiral is indeed being a bit unfair to dismiss Sherman's expertise. And Stephen's exactly in the right of it, saying, well, hang on a second, this guy could really help you. <sighs> Mike, I, I get the sense that partly as a result of this and partly just as the Admiral's temper from meeting Jack Aubrey winds down, we're getting a little bit more of a balanced perspective here from the Admiral. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, Ian. You know, we take a breath, the wine is poured, and then I think we get to, okay, yeah, I did want to get my pain treated, but now perhaps we're understanding a little bit better why he's called for Stephen. And he says he understands that Dr. Matron and Captain Aubrey have been shipmates for many commissions and often mess together, and he therefore assumes are well assorted, you know, is what he says, meaning properly suited to each other. Uh, you know, something he adds, which does Captain Aubrey much honor. So, you know, if he's your friend, then that says a lot for him. He says, someone of Matron's shining parts must have acquired a great influence over Aubrey. Stephen says, well, Captain Aubrey's intelligence and learning are in many ways far superior to mine. And, he, you know, he starts citing his Royal Society mathematical and astronomical papers. And the Admiral just seems to sort of walk straight by that. And he recalls how Stephen had impressed his royal patient so much with his explanation of the Spartan system that his highness had told the admiral afterwards, well, there's a head for you by God. So you know, <laughs> the admiral certainly holds Stephen in great esteem and is looking at him, I think, as a, as a real lever to try to get Jack Aubrey to change his mind. So he says that that brings me to my point here, the enclosure he says, now, I know that many people, including your friend, I'm using air quotes here, Aubrey, yeah. see us as self-seeking, hard-hearted wretches, and that my nephew Griffins and his associates, who, you know, who lack graces, may have strengthened that opinion. But he says, there's a very different side to the question. Because benevolent, knowledgeable men like Arthur Young, you know, this writer that we yeah. talked about earlier, and he says, you know, you're Sir Joseph Banks, president of the Royal Society, believe in enclosure said Sir Joseph himself enclosed thousands of acres, he says, to the great benefit of his tenants and the country, and it must be added himself. Uh, and then he goes on to say that rational cultivation is only possible on a large scale, and doing so increases yields tremendously. You know, he talks about how much uh, Sir Joseph benefited, he says, in his own, you know, the Admiral's own crops, his cornfield yield 27% more in less than three years now. And, you know, from these miserable little scraps thrown together into large fields properly hedged and ditched. Now, he says he's got other lands that had even greater gains, but they required a lot of drainage, which, a cap, you know, the villagers would never have had the capital to do. Um, he says that the law talks about the Lord's waste. We've heard that, you know, the common yeah. land. And he says, but but truer words were never spoken. It truly is a waste. We have hundreds, maybe thousands of acres that could be pasture or tillage that now support, in the Admiral's words, you know, a few goats and an ass, perhaps a little game, which only tempts people to poach and which produce nothing but poverty, idleness and vice. Mm. Mm. Maybe a little giveaway there, huh? Yeah, I think so. It's funny. I was I was partly with the admiral as he was talking about the economic power needed to fight a war, and there, there, there if if there's ever an argument for controlling assets centrally like this, and anybody who'd lived through World War Two as O'Brien had done would recall that this was something that we we did and we had to do. The government takes control of the allocation of resources, does it centrally because that's the way to make the economic power all available to fight war. And if it was just that, in a, in a sort of Adam Smith way, I think the Admiral's got a point. But he absolutely betrays himself and the weakness of his argument when he says, actually, what I what I really want to do as a result of this is not have all his wickedness and vice and smelly working class people. I want the power then to be in the hands of guys like me. So you, you came close for a second there, Admiral. But in the end, I think he blew it. <laughs> well, I... I think you're right. I, I think he goes on now to wrap himself in the flag here as he tries to convince yeah. Stephen. Well, Stephen says nothing, as he often does when he wants somebody to continue making a mistake. And uh, the Admiral thinks, well, maybe I've lost the thread and I'm becoming long-winded. He, he, he turns to classical 
arguments. He says, it's like the Spartans compared to a rabble with arms or a parcel of fishing boats with every skipper for himself versus a well-officered man of war. A well-enclosed estate, he says, directed by men of education and capital as against the village of small holdings, an immense set of largely unproductive commons. They are at war, he says, going down the Adam Smith route here. And even if this one ends, foreigners like Spain can't be trusted. The country needs more corn. We need more meat to fight the army and the navy. Just like it was the duty of Spartans to bring up fighting men, it is their duty to bring up farmers to feed the fighting men. <sighs> yeah. Mm. Uh, anyhow, he says, the, your, your village strephons, and here, Mike, I think this, this Greek word strephon means a reference to pastoral male lovers in stories, and I'm not entirely sure that that's what the Admiral had in mind. But anyhow, <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're kind of corn-headed, smock-wearing, gambling pastoral yokels, um, even if they ever existed, are not very valuable in this grand economic scheme that the Whigs all have in their mind here. He says, Stephen would be a friend if he, Stephen, would put that view to his shipmate, meaning Jack Aubrey. The Admiral can't, he says, because he's an interested party. And because, now, now at confession time, the Admiral says he had used some unguarded terms with Captain Aubrey because of his disappointment at his news. And right, before we get into wrapping up the Admiral's little speech here, I, I, I like this little bit of confession. I like that the Admiral, even though it's taken him a while and he's huffed and puffed a lot along the way, has been able to say out loud that actually he was, he was being a bit of a blowhard earlier on when he was giving Jack his dressing down. It's interesting. I, I think he is saying that, but you know, I kind of wonder in my own mind when he was saying that Jack's luck is running out, if he wasn't sort of telegraphing ahead going, yeah, yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, you 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 got me over against you now here, and he and he kind of really jumps into this here. Um, he finishes off by saying, you know, it's a time for sailors and neighbors to stand together. He says if victory comes, it will be a hard time for the service. You know, ships paid off by the hundreds, precious few commands, and he goes on to say, and I quote here, a time when a well placed friend may prove. And then all of a sudden he stops himself. He coughs. He looks very embarrassed. And O'Brien says, on a face unused to such an expression, doesn't usually get embarrassed, right? He begs Stephen's pardon for being wearisome and says he feels strongly about this, but he could place his hand on his heart and assert that he would be of the same opinion if neither he nor his nephew possessed an acre of land. He says his secretary has some messages for the doctor, so he won't bore him anymore thanks him for listening so patiently, bows, and leaves the cabin to him so that Stephen can talk with Craddock, his secretary here. So I, I think he was just about to outright, you know, sort of, uh, you know, bribe Stephen and Jack here and, and caught himself to say, yeah, I, I know what you think of us. Let me demonstrate it. But, he, you know, no, <laughs> wait, wait a minute. No, no. This is all about patriotism. I forgot. It's patriotism. No, no, no. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure how successfully this is going across with Stephen. We'll see. We'll see. Back on the Bellona, Stephen tells Jack that he admires Jack for the fortitude that he's shown in making no reply to the Admiral's remarks to Jack. So a point of moral advantage to Jack here. And I love this quote from Jack. He says, one of the first things one learns in the service is that any reply to a superior officer any justification, protest, and counter-accusation is absolutely useless. And if the superior wishes to destroy you, it is the best possible way of helping him to do so. No. It is a poor, shabby thing to blackguard a man who cannot answer. But I believe he was vexed to the very heart. And it might, it's a great line, and it's really great wisdom from Jack. I'm not sure that it's the first thing he ever learned in the service. Otherwise, no. <laughs> he wouldn't have been crossing swords with Hart all the way through the first book, first books in the canon here. But still, we'll, right. we'll, we'll let him reach back and claim credit for it. There you go. Now, Stephen agrees. He says the Admiral was indeed vexed to the very heart. And Jack says the Admiral's going to leave the inshore squadron soon, and therefore Jack will be able to show Stephen some more of the area. Stephen's gazing out at the sea and the shore, and he comes back to this theme of, being happy to be away and at sea and free. 
Here's space, he says. Here's air, the vast sweep of the ocean, this glorious room. Servants and victuals are plenty. No domestic worries of any kind. Hundreds of miles from importunity. And as I understand it, we simply go up and down in this spacious great bay. Delightful sailing, sure. Perhaps after dinner, we may have some music. Jack gives the required reply, which is with all his heart. He says he hasn't touched his fiddle for a month or more, and I think we know why. He's invited Harding and also one of the new midshipmen, a fellow by the name of Gagan, who he says is clever and plays a creditable oboe, but can't learn to coil a rope down like a Christian. So I wonder, I wonder if Gagan, the slightly unhanded lubberly midshipman, might have been one of the officers on deck at the time of the event that Admiral Stranraer was talking about. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe Jack can take care of raising Gagan in, in right seamanship and rope handling. We'll see. Nice. Well, Stephen tells Jack that the Admiral had what he calls some misty words about the future. And Stephen thinks that they might relate to Jack's earlier talk about yellowing. And he asked Jack to explain the term so that Stephen can understand it. And, and Jack does so, you know, just like he did to Sophie at the beginning of the book here, with a little bit more detail about people being put on the list as retired captains or, you know, being made yellow admirals. And Stephen says, well, you know, Jack, you're not at the top of the list. You, you don't have to worry about this for a couple of years now. And Jack says, well, it's the running up period that's most important. While the Admiralty are slowly making up their minds, you can't put a foot wrong. So, you know, you, you yeah. gotta, yeah, you really can't do that. And he says, if peace breaks out, commands are going to be as rare as needles in a haystack. So he says, he'll do anything to be promoted as Rear Admiral of the Blue, even if it's to the tiniest sloop of war mosquito with two four-pounders and a swivel, yeah, so long as he can hoist his flag at her mizzenmast. And Stephen asks if Simmons Lee comes within the limits of anything. And Jack says, of course not. How can you be so strange? And Stephen says, well, you know, the word anything is an elastic term. <laughs> right. Anything, but not absolutely anything. That sounds like the words of a song that I'm not going to get into right now. <laughs> <laughs> now, Stephen says... If Jack's fears come true, it's not the end of your seagoing career. Stephen had recently seen his friends from Chile who see the coming end of England's war linked to the independence of their country and to a potential rivalry with other provinces like Peru. So we're getting reminded here that Jack's career trajectory is inspired by that of uh, Lord Thomas Cochrane. And of course, Cochrane had this phase of his career where he was working for the Chilean government. He says they're going to need a Chilean Navy with experienced, victorious officers, none more suitable than an admiral like Jack, even if he has been yellowed by the politics. And we don't get a straight answer to this from Jack. Um, he goes back to just talking about the uh, seascape around them. He points out Dead Man's Bay and what he calls Razdesane, a devilish passage in heavy weather. And besides the ominous sound of Dead Man's Bay, Raz Desain means storm within. So, Mike, there's a, there's a bit of a dark tone here. And uh, here's the response that closes out the chapter. Stephen nodded. And with a curiously knowing look, his head on one side, he asked, Can you foretell the dark of the moon with reasonable accuracy? I believe so, said Jack. Her motions are of some importance in navigation, you know, and we learn them quite early. Well, I am happy to hear you say so. He completely blazes past Jack's little facetious remark there. I am happy to hear you say so, for at the dark of the moon I must beg you to set me ashore with a gentleman at present aboard the flagship in a little cove just south of this same Pointe du Raz. Jack gazed over the sea. How serious... Are these people, he asked after a while. Deeply serious, said Stephen. They're closely associated with O'Higgins and his friends. They are men of great substance in those parts and are wholly committed to independence. More serious, you could not wish. Another silence. The dark of the moon will be in eight days, said Jack. End of chapter four. Wow. Cool. Nice. Yeah, I love that ending. Oh, my goodness. 
Boy, you know, it's it's interesting. And I, I want to come back to that ending too. But I just start off observing that, you know, for this chapter where supposedly we left domestic problems far behind, there certainly has been a great deal of conversation about marriage, what women want, <laughs> and, and at least some initial hints that these domestic concerns may not be all that far away. A lot of land problems seem to have followed them yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Well, it's been also, it's, it's an interesting chapter because we've had this conversation about marriage. We've had Jack setting himself up as a bridegroom before he's going in to see the Admiral. We've had the story of the tale of the wife of Bath. We've had the story of bridegrooms killing themselves. Jack probably hasn't done himself terrible damage with the Admiral, but he does appear perhaps in some way to have shot himself in the foot. So maybe there's a connection there. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and we've kind of gone from Jack, you know, you know, shooting himself in the foot with the Admiral over this enclosure petition and, and perhaps maybe moving a little bit closer to being yellowed if Jack is right yeah. about this being a crucial time of assessment. You can't put a foot wrong here. But Stephen coming up with this fascinating save here. Admiral Aubrey of the Chilean Navy. Yeah. Stephen, we know, just met with these guys in Spain now, is he perhaps about to meet with him again? What is this that's going to be happening in eight days with this dark of the moon? Or is this another intelligence mission ashore that we don't know about? I, I love the way that the writing brought these two ideas together in those closing paragraphs. And, and maybe Jack thinking about the dark of the moon and Stephen thinking about the Chile rebels and, and, and the going ashore, maybe these are different things but O'Brien's planted them as the same thing in our mind. And it's really fascinating. That last paragraph reminded me, you know, the, the end of the first act of a really good spy novel where the two right. kind of co-protagonists have, have reached an understanding and they're about to set off on their adventure. Yeah, it, it almost seems like, you know, we kind of go from a really dense chapter to a fairly straightforward one, yeah. you know, with some hidden depths to a more dense chapter this week. You know, clearly... Yeah, I, I'd say O'Brien's writing chops are in great condition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no this, doubt. This is good stuff. <laughs> so it, it's interesting then. Are we going to follow this same rhythm of, you know, a deep and rich versus plot driven? Are, are we going to go back to a deep and rich chapter next week? Um, we certainly know that the Admiral is hoping that Stephen can influence Jack's views on enclosures. We know that's not going to happen. Um, it seems that the Admiral could be looking for ways to punish Jack over this enclosure vote. Will all of the sailing peril of the inshore squadron provide the Admiral with such an opportunity? Or is, is all the peril going to come when Stephen makes his trip ashore at the dark of the moon? Because we know that's been a dangerous place for Stephen in the past. Right. I guess Ian, there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? with all my heart. I'm sorry, I'm miles away. There we go. Welcome. Oh, no, I'm Easy Tiger. Easy Tiger. <laughs>